Welcome to the Living Anchored Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Shores Church in St. Clair Shores, Michigan. My name is Scott Lorraine, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and we'd love for you to take a few moments and listen to our most recent sermon. We believe that it will bless your life and help you live a life anchored to Jesus Christ. Good morning. Welcome back to the Shores Church. So excited to have you with us yet again. Uh, I look forward to that day where you're back in the building with us. Please never feel rushed to come back, but know that uh, your, your church family loves you, that they want to see you again, they can't wait to see you again, and there's a whole lot of new people here even that want to meet you and get to know you, that the body of Christ, whether we're online or in person, it's growing together. So this morning, we're going to be starting a brand new series, and the series is called Jesus Equals. Jesus equals, and we're going to be studying through the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to be taking the next several weeks, and we're going to be going through uh, chapter by chapter, uh, not necessarily verse by verse, but every week I'm going to have you reading uh, the, the chapters ahead of time. We're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 today. Next week we'll be looking at 3 and 4, so make sure you read chapters 3 and 4 uh, before next Sunday so you're prepared and you're ready to go. But this morning as we jump into this, I want you to understand the context. Whenever we study a full book of the Bible, I always want you to understand the context. Who's the author? Who is the author writing to? What general time period are they writing about? Uh, what overall themes are there to take? And a really useful tool so that you can use, and you can use this for any book of the Bible, is if you go on YouTube, just like you are right now, and search the Bible Project with the book of the Bible. So this morning, in just a moment, I'm going to have you watch the Bible Project overall recap. It's a visual recap of the book of Hebrews. And it kind of gives you an idea of what the book is about, paints a big picture. And so what we're going to do is we're going to watch that together right now. It's going to take a couple minutes, but it's going to give you a good overlay of this book. And then I'm going to come back and specifically talk about chapters 1 and 2 this week. And then we're going to be following kind of the overarching theme of this book through the course of the series. So one and two this week, three and four next week, the following week, five, six, and seven, etc. You'll kind of get a feel of where we're going with things. Uh, but before we do that, before we jump into this, what I want you to do right now is repeat after me. Your word is written in my mind. Your word is hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. I choose to live my life according to your word. Your word, O oh Lord, is eternal. So like I said, we're going to be watching right now the Bible Project's uh, adaptation of the book of Hebrews, kind of giving you a nice summary of what it's about. And again, you can use this for any book of the Bible. If you ever want to know what's the context, what's going on, what are the themes, go to YouTube, Bible Project, in that particular book of the Bible. So let's take a couple minutes together right now and watch this video. 
The Letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God, where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians that's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. 
In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, this final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end, a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages 
They're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. Well, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed watching that video. I hope it spoke to you. I hope that it gave you a good understanding of the context of this book of Hebrews and what is trying to be communicated. As you saw in the video, chapter 1 and 2 is really making this comparison between Jesus and the angels and how if the angels brought this great message and there is a reverency for angels, then how much more should there be for Jesus because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So first thing I want you to realize is that God through the Old Testament and even through a lot of the Gospels used a lot of different ways to communicate with humans. That whether it was God speaking directly, you have Moses hearing through the burning bush, you have angels that are coming and speaking to man, you have prophets that are hearing from God and then speaking to man, that there's a lot of different ways. Uh, and we're really looking at chapters 1 and 2, this idea of how angels brought the message. And I want you to hear this for a moment. Here's just several examples through the Old Testament, even into uh, some of the, the Gospels, of angels speaking to humans. In Genesis 18, we have God uh, sent three men, messengers, to Abraham and to Sarah to tell them that Sarah was going to bear a child in her old age. He sent an angel to Sarah's servant uh, Hagar in the desert in Genesis 16 to give her hope that she had not been forgotten. That he sent an angel to, this, uh, to the discouraged Gideon in Judges 6, who greeted him with the words, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Imagine that in your moment of discouragement, an angel comes in on behalf of God and says, The Lord is with you. Don't be discouraged, you mighty warrior. That he sent the angel Gabriel to Mary in Luke 1 to tell her that she would give birth to the Son of God. That we have the angel Gabriel coming again to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 to say that his wife was going to bear a son that was going to be John the Baptist. That an angel coming into Luke chapter 2 to the shepherds to tell them of Jesus' birth. Then in Matthew chapter 28, we have an angel appearing at the tomb of Jesus to announce that Jesus has risen, that Jesus is alive. So we see this from the beginning of Scripture all the way through the, the resurrection of Jesus. We see these examples, and if we took more time, we could identify so many different moments where prophets heard from angels, and then the prophets spoke to man, where mankind heard from angels or saw angels. This is a recurring theme, and we see this happening over and over again. This is just touching the tip of the iceberg this moment, this morning, that there's so many other examples that we could pull from. But I want you to hear what Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4 says. So would you read this with me this morning? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited 
is more excellent than theirs. When we, we hear this, we see this author that we don't know acknowledging that God has spoken to man through angels, that God has spoken to man through the prophets, that God himself has even in moments spoken to man directly. That through this, though, the comparison to the prophets speaking to man or to the angels speaking to man, that those were good things that we still use the office of the prophet today. But ultimately, the greatest thing that we can experience is hearing God speak directly to us. That we can look in Scripture, John 1, saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That we go on to see that the Word became flesh. Who is the Word? It's Jesus. That Jesus comes on behalf of God the Father to become this living Word that we can see, we can interact with, that we can experience. And that so often, I think there's this desire of, I want to see something that's external. If I could hear the audible voice of God, or if I could see an angel, or I could experience something, then, then I will really trust God. But one of the things that I think we miss out on, when we look for this external, we cheapen Jesus. Because we want to experience God. When in reality, we can invite God in and internally begin to begin the, the change to begin to look more like Jesus, to act like Jesus. The idea that we are always wanting the external experience when we realize the fact that when we internally experience Jesus, that we then get to be the external experience of Jesus for others. Let me say that again. I want to make sure you get that this morning. That when we only focus on the external experience, we miss out on the opportunity to internally be changed, to internally experience Jesus, to have Jesus come in to radically change us, to have the Holy Spirit convict us so that we look more like Jesus. When we are radically changed like that, we are then able to become the external experience for somebody else and see their life change. That this idea of, I just want to experience the supernatural. No, you get to participate in the supernatural. We get to experience in a different way that the word became flesh, that we get to interact. It's not just a matter we get the scriptures, we get the words that we can read, but the fact that this becomes alive and it changes us so that we look more like Jesus. It's exciting that if we only focus on the angels, we don't get to experience what is real and living. And that's who Jesus is. That Jesus goes back into heaven at the end of the Gospels so that he can send the Holy Spirit to be our helper. So that the Spirit of God can dwell amongst us and in us and through us so that we can impact other people. Now one of the things that really stood out to me in the, the video that you just watched a couple minutes ago is it references the fact that the author of Hebrews continues to reference the Old Testament. And that there's so many moments in scripture where you're seeing cross-references that one author is referencing another author uh, from previous. Or in the New Testament, a lot of these books are being written about the same time. And so they're referencing one another. But what you, you'll notice if you don't understand how the, the Bible is notated like this, uh, my particular version is the English Standard Version. And it, when I read through here, it's not going to be close enough for you to see, but I've got a bigger block of space and in this bigger block of space this is what the author's writing but then there's these smaller blocks of space where there's quotations and this is the author quoting a previous book of the bible and that 
uh, in this particular example, when I get to chapter five, or uh, chapter five, verse five, it says uh, a little a and then a little b. And at the bottom of the page, it lists what book of the Bible that is referencing. Because uh, here, let me just go ahead and I'm going to read uh, Hebrews 1 verse 5 for you right now. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. There's an A with that. Or again, and now a B goes with this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So when we look at this, these are cross-references that are happening, that the author is writing about something else. So the, the question that's posed here is to which of the angels did God ever say this? And the statement is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So let's look at the bottom. What footnote is that going to? It actually goes back to Psalms chapter 2, verse 7, that says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if we do a little bit of a study on Psalm 2 and say, okay, well, what's this psalm about? Why is this writer writing about this psalm? Well, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. That it means that it's pointing towards Jesus Christ. It's pointing towards the Messiah in the future. So what is being said here is, to what angel did God ever say that you're my son, that I've begotten you? Which one did he ever tell that you're going to be the one that saves all mankind? The simple answer is this. God has never said that to an angel because an angel isn't the Messiah. But he says it to Jesus. And when we look at John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this first part of the statement is, to what angel did God say that? He hasn't. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the messenger. So if an angel brings a message to you, it's probably a good thing. But we shouldn't be looking for angels or external things that always bring us messages because God has already given us the message. God has already given us his word. And we need to treat this with such a level of seriousness because the word became flesh. Jesus is the word. When we want to know what Jesus is like, who he is, have him change our life, we need to know this book. And if Jesus would die for us, then we should take this seriously and get it into our life. If you're not reading your Bible on a daily basis, let me challenge you to do it. Find a Bible reading plan. Find somebody that you can partner with, that you can go on the YouVersion Bible app. Not only can you take notes and follow along with our, our messages, but you can find reading plans of all different sorts and types, and you can follow along and read a path and just every single day read a, a couple different chapters. If you read about four chapters a day uh, of the Bible, you can read through the entire Bible in a year. Make that commitment, because if an angel can bring a message and we treat that with seriousness, then we should treat Jesus with even more seriousness. Now, the other thing, and I just said this a moment ago, verse... Uh, five of chapter one, there is a second part where it said, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That, that back part has the letter B there. So that cross-reference, when I look at the bottom, says 2 Samuel 7, 14. And here is what that passage says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So again, the this verse is saying, when did God ever say this about an angel? That when did God ever say that I will be like to him a father, he'll be like to me a son? Simple answer is he didn't. When we look at 2 Samuel 7, 12-14, and we read this passage and we connect it to this, what's being said here? Well, this is the, the prophet Nathan speaking to David, making a covenant between David and God. When we have that in our mind, hear this passage one more time. When your days are fulfilled, that's Nathan speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, from your lineage, from your family uh, lineage, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Who is he referencing here? Jesus. Jesus is the one who came. Jesus is the one who brought the good news. Jesus is coming through the, the bloodline of David. That he's Nathan is sharing with David that God is making this promise to him that the Messiah is coming through your family line. Now, if we continue through chapter 1, and you can take the time and do this later, in verse 6, we see another cross-reference. Verse 7, we see another. Uh, in verse 8, we see another. In verse 10, we see yet another, that you, you get this idea that there are multiple, multiple examples just in chapter 1 where God's saying, when did I say this about an angel? Or when did I say this about an angel? Or when did I say that about an angel? I didn't. I said them about Jesus. So when we look at this comparison between angels and Jesus, we need to evaluate who is the messenger in the level of seriousness that we need to bring to that message. So we need to kind of keep coming back to this and saying, you know what, if Jesus said it, it matters and I need to treat it with seriousness. If an angel appeared to you tonight, you would probably have this like shock and awe moment of, wow, an angel is here. Think of Mary when she hears the, the message that you're going to bear the, the Son of God, that the Messiah is going to come via you. And that we can look at it like, that shock and awe of, I'm in the presence of an angel, but whenever somebody trembles at an angel, the angel says, like, don't tremble, don't fear me, you need to fear God. And it's this idea that we now have the message, we have the word, we have the Son of God that we can experience, and we're still so focused on the external experience that we do not focus on the internal experience. And again, if we will allow God to internally change us, we begin to become the external experience for others. And just like we went through the series of At the Table, and we really studied the idea of, let's bring other people to the table, that God desires others to enter into relationship with him, that Jesus would always sit down at a table with someone else. When we allow God to internally change us, we can begin to invite people to that table. We must change so that others can experience God. Now, the other thing I want to pull out this morning is this, is when we watched that video by the Bible Project, it referenced that each of these little passages has a warning that comes with it. And when we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we see the first of these warnings. So let's go ahead and read this this morning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, 
lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, when we hear this, what we need to really take away is the fact that when we look at everything that an angel said or everything that a prophet said in the Old Testament and through the Gospels, it always came to pass. It always happened the way they said it was going to happen because they were speaking on behalf of God. When you're listening to and watching individuals who would claim themselves to be prophets, you need to evaluate what they're saying and what they're doing. If they are saying they are speaking on behalf of God, then what they're saying needs to happen. And when we look at the Old Testament prophets, when we look at the angels, when they said something, it happened. So when we, we hear this, that if we treated that as reliable, then all the more we need to treat the New Testament, we need to treat the words of Jesus and everything moving forward as reliable as well, if not more reliable. And how do you make it reliable? By believing it and hearing it and reading it and speaking it over yourself. I'm currently reading through a book by Mark Batterson right now. It's called Win the Day. And one of the concepts that he references in this is you need to flip the script. It's about different habits and different things you can do to allow yourself to uh, become more successful, to accomplish more for God. And it's the idea that I need to flip the script. Instead of looking at all the negative things or all the bad things going on in my, my world or uh, in my situation, I need to start saying, you know what, I'm going to flip the story that this person might say this about me, but this is what God says about me. That when Jesus says this is who you are, that Jesus came and redeemed you, that Jesus came and died on the cross for you, that Jesus came to wipe away your sin, that Jesus came to give you eternal life, you need to not look at your past anymore. Stop believing your past is your present and believe that your past is an experience that is prompting you to move into a new future, into a new day where you're able to do greater things for God. You're not who you used to be anymore. So stop believing it. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus because he died for you. He died for you and changed that past. If we would simply invite him in a minute ago, I said it, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that who would ever believe in him shall not perish, shall not die away, shall not fall apart, shall not be stuck in the past, but they will have everlasting life. So if it, the angel's words prove to be reliable in the Old Testament, then Jesus's words are reliable. Stop believing the, the things that you're hearing, the, the, the stories that your mind is telling you, that the things that the enemies are is telling you, that the things that uh, people of the world are telling you, you are a new creation. Trust and believe that God is who God said he was going to be and that God is going to do something great and something unique and something different in your life. Now, we can take this away and realize that Jesus Christ is our salvation, that the, the things of the past aren't going to save us, but Jesus is going to save us. But here's what I need you to hear. I need you to take this away. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The last thing that really separates the angels from Jesus is the fact that the angels can bring a message on behalf of God, but the angels have never experienced what you have. The angels never became man. The angels never uh, were born to, to live and to face temptation and to face the the consequences of sin and all these different things. The angels never went to the cross for you. The angels were never resurrected for you. The angels have never set you free, but Jesus has, that Jesus has experienced something on a deeper level. We need to never look at salvation and say, well, that's not that big of a deal. No, it absolutely is. This is what Jesus Christ has done for you, that he partook in everything of life. He experienced everything that we would experience so that he would be able to be the perfect sacrifice for our life, that Jesus is this great messenger, that Jesus loves us, that Jesus cares for us, that Jesus equals God's word, that Jesus is truth, that when we think of Jesus, we can think of God's word. When we think of God's word, we know it's true, that if Jesus said it, that if God said it, we know it is good, that angels had brought great messages in the past, but now we have the word of God right here that can sharpen us, that can challenge us, that can make us look more like Jesus so that we don't have to just externally experience God, but that we can internally experience God and that we can do the things that God would desire for us to do, that we can go out and do greater things than what we even read in scripture because God is working in us so that he can work through us so that he can impact a world that desperately needs him. So as we study this this morning, we're, we're through chapters one and two. We, we have this idea that we have the word, that we need to treat this word with all seriousness. We need to spend time in this word. We need to sharpen ourselves with this so that we can share the good news with others. Because as we walk on behalf of Jesus Christ, that we get to be messengers that we don't need an angel to appear to somebody else, but that we can tangibly be a messenger on behalf of Jesus, sharing that good news with others. So here's how I want to end today. It's how we end a lot of weeks. It's that prayer of salvation. I want, if you're watching this and you're a part of our church, great. If you're watching this and this is the first time you've ever seen my face, here's what I want you to know. There's no magic words to this. You simply have to say, Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you change me? I recognize that you sent Jesus to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to be a great teacher, to, to do miracles, but ultimately to, to die on a cross, to die a death he didn't deserve, to be ultimately resurrected and to ascend back into heaven so that I could have eternal life with Jesus if I would simply believe. All you have to do is in your words this morning, just say, Jesus, would you just come in and would you change me? In this internal experience that I'm talking about, it will begin to happen that God will begin changing you and transforming you to look more like his son. And then we spend more time studying God's word in hearing God's word in spending time sharpening ourselves with other people. Hop in one of the Zoom anchor groups and participate. Be sharpened by other people that when you're ready to be back in this building, attend uh, one of our in-person groups that we're starting to look at what ministries we can bring back. Join a ministry, join, serve, do the things that are going to help you look more like Jesus. So this morning, if you're saying like, hey, 
I need to know, what do I need to do? You need to just simply ask Jesus into your heart. And I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. And that for everybody else, as you're hearing this, I want you to realize you may already have Jesus in your heart, but you need to go out and you need to do something about it. That you're still so focused on the external. Let me experience, let me experience. And your experience needs to turn into action that will send you out into the world so that your internal experience becomes an external experience for somebody else. That you get to just not say, well, Jesus is great that Jesus is there, but Jesus wants to do something for other people and he wants to do it through me. So I want to pray for both groupings of people this morning that if you're accepting Jesus for the first time or if you need to be moved to action, that, that Jesus would just push you into ministry in a way that you never have seen it before. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for my friends this morning as they just watch this, as they take in your word, as we study Hebrews 1 and 2. Lord, if they have never accepted you before, maybe they've heard the message before today, maybe this is the first time they ever have heard this message. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would just move in them. Lord, that they would accept you into their heart for the very first time. Lord, something that may have just previously been external would become internal for the very first time. Lord, that you would begin transforming their heart, transforming their mind, so that they would look more like you, Jesus. Lord, that as they, they pray this right now in their own words, accepting you into their life, Lord, that it would just radically change and transform their life. And Lord, I pray for my friends that as they, they watch this, that they've accepted you before. Lord, they're living for you. But Lord, they're still so focused at times at that external experience of just wanting more of you and wanting more of you. Lord, I pray that it would move us to internal action, that we would look so much like Jesus that it would overflow out of us so that we would go out and tell people about you, that the things of this world would no longer distract us, but Lord, that you would move through us so that we would impact a world that desperately needs to be impacted by you, that our internal experience would become an external experience for others. Lord, we thank you so much. You are a great God. You are an awesome God. Lord, move in us and through us. In Jesus' incredible name, amen. All right, as we go to the close today, would you repeat with me the Great Commission? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have a blessed day. Make sure you read Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 for next week. I am looking forward to continuing the study of Jesus equals with you. See you next time. Thank you for joining us today on the Living Anchored Podcast. If this message impacted you, please remember to follow so you can see all of our content in the future and share on social media so other people can have their life impacted as well. Our mission at the Shores Church is to help people live a life anchored to Jesus Christ. So your help will definitely help us accomplish our goal. If you're interested in helping support our church financially, please go to theshoreschurch.org, click on Give, and you'll be able to do so that way. Have a blessed and incredible day, and we look forward to having you with us next time.